Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. And today we will be discussing the COVID strategy, basically internationally and in Lebanon, particularly the zero COVID strategy with two guests. One, the first guest, Dr. Jad Khalifi, who is an epidemiologist currently based in Copenhagen, but has done a lot of work in healthcare in Lebanon and particularly has been a big advocate of the zero COVID strategy. And uh, we have Dr. Hamad Ali Jardali, who is, has been with us on the podcast previously and who is chief resident at the American University of Beirut Medical Center of Family Medicine and currently is practicing in Lebanon. Welcome to both of you to this podcast. It's great to be back. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, COVID has been a, a big issue worldwide and it has been very difficult uh, to control. And I know, Jad, you've done a lot of work on that and on epidemiology of, of COVID. So what is, can you tell us a bit about what, what the zero COVID strategy is? Well, uh, the, the main idea of zero COVID or zero COVID strategy is, is what we call, you want to contain the virus, you want to contain the spread and you want to move towards elimination, uh, which means you have to chase after every case that you can do effective contact tracing. Once you've, uh, once you've uh, identified the cases, you isolate them, you quarantine their contacts, you don't allow for community spread or, or mysterious uh, spread, mysterious cases to, to arise. So the, the whole idea is that you keep aiming to maintain immunity transmission to zero or as close to zero as possible. And in doing that, of course, even if you don't achieve that aim, because on and off you will have some outbreaks, but the fact that you're aiming for zero, you keep hammering it down and keeping it as low as possible at, at zero or near zero. Basically similar, I guess, to the strategy that New Zealand uh, was using and maybe Australia yes. to a certain extent. Yes. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that the very first strategy tried against COVID as well as the first one to succeed was the zero COVID strategy with the outbreak in Wuhan in Hubei province uh, in China. They followed the zero COVID strategy. They at some point had 67,000 cases and within six weeks they reached zero. Then others also adopted it, including New Zealand at the later point, Australia, other countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea too, in its own version as well. So several countries uh, actually followed that strategy and have been succeeding massively with this. And not only those, including other countries such as Mongolia, until they had a change of government a couple of months ago, they were very also successful, despite their limited resources and even very large uh, regions in India as well, with millions and millions of people, uh, yet they were uh, able to apply zero COVID strategy. So uh, we know how COVID is transmitted, but what's the global situation and how COVID develops, so like the threats, opportunities ahead and the path ahead from that standpoint? Well, what we're seeing is that last year or about a year and a half ago, uh, the start of the outbreak, uh, there were some people who were uh, saying, you know, apply the precautionary principle, uh, respect uncertainty. We don't know a lot about this virus, so why take the risk? But uh, unfortunately, uh, still, a lot of countries, most of the countries in the world insisted on finding out the hard way of how much harm this virus can, uh, can do. And the problem is the virus is just faster uh, than us. It's faster than humans, and it evolves very rapidly. So it doesn't make sense, especially that this is a virus which is really not compatible with with living or coexisting with, uh, so to speak. There are many other viruses which are far less harmful and have far less 
of an impact. We've also had the benefit of decades and decades of research and knowledge about them, but not this one. So we're getting a lot of spread continually happening. We're getting new variants coming up. A lot of them are not a threat, but some of them are. And roughly every five to six months, we're having a cycle with a new variant, which is more transmissible and in some cases also more severe. So this seems to be we've opened Pandora's box and rather than clamping down and getting cases as low as possible everywhere and preventing the virus from evolving this uh, rapidly and harming so many people in the process, we're still letting this out. So that, that's what's very concerning out of this. And of course, vaccination has been extremely helpful, but from the start, it was clear that the, we can't base uh, our approach to COVID uh, solely on the vaccine itself, because it has to be layered strategies, layered measures to prevent transmission. So that is why, particularly perhaps later on, when there are perhaps the intranasal vaccines, which will provide mucosal immunity, there might be much more potential still to gain with later vaccines. But at this point, that's certainly part of an effective strategy, but you also need to take other measures such as effective contact tracing, quarantine, and isolation. Otherwise, you just can't keep up with it. Yeah, it makes sense what you're saying. It's like the Swiss cheese model, right? You need multiple layers of protection. We cannot just depend on vaccination. So the path ahead uh, looks tricky, especially with the emergence of like the new variants. My question to you, speaking of vaccination, and I know this is like very controversial, but there's been a lot of talk about different strategies. At one point, we're talking about flattening the curve. And I guess with zero COVID, it's more about squashing the curve. But we also hear a lot about reaching herd immunity. Is this still relevant and can you achieve it through vaccination or can you also achieve it through infection? Well, it's interesting because there's been several critical mistakes that have happened in this process and for various reasons. But one of them was having flattened the curve strategy, flattening the curve with the aim being to remain within healthcare capacity. And it just doesn't make sense because your virus can increase in a multiplicative manner. It can reach an exponential uh, rate uh, of increase, whereas your resources, be they hospitals or testing or, or whatever, don't increase in that manner. They don't have that multiplicative potential. That is why we keep ha having this issue on and off in many countries that you're, you're approaching your capacity, then you take more measures, then you lock down Okay, you gain, uh, you reduce the harm temporarily, and then again, you open up society, you decrease your measures, and up you go again, either after you've removed them or when the next variant comes in. Of course, you have to lock down when everything else uh, has collapsed, but that's not the strategy you should follow. You should keep cases as, as low as possible. So intermittent lockdowns isn't a strategy? No. No, if anything, it's a sign of a failed uh, overall approach. It's fine to have them when you need to. It's like the nuclear, you know, last resort uh, kind of thing. But it's better to have it, let's say, uh, for a city rather than uh, a country. It's better to have it for a country than for uh, all the world or many countries across the world. So, And where and does this put us in terms of herd immunity? Herd immunity now with, with the Delta variant has become more or less uh, meaningless. I mean, it's largely now a question of protecting yourself. And of course, it matters at a smaller level, at a smaller scale, because uh, people think, you know, when you reach, let's say, 
Uh, with Delta, now we need to vaccinate about 90% of the population altogether. And again, that is if everyone's convinced uh, to have that. And of course, it will be more effective on some and than others. And, and the viral pressure, the uh, pressure of infection also matters if you allow it just to circulate all around. So we are discovering, and these things were fairly obvious to, to some people uh, already last year, that you just can't rely on, on one single measure that you still need to vaccinate as much as possible and it helps, it provides a buffer, but you can't rely on that alone. So, so vaccination is, is largely to protect yourself and those who don't get vaccinated sooner or later in the coming months or year or so will most likely get infected, which is something to avoid. That is because of different COVID variants too, right? It seems like uh, herd immunity is a far-fetched thing because also it seems like vaccine, uh, immune status is waning down. So you get, the, you get the virus, then it wanes down, then you start getting it again. And this is also happening with the vaccine now. We're seeing that at this point. So saying that too, I think what, what's more important with the zero COVID strategy is the symptoms people are having post COVID. I mean, we have like here where I work right now at GW, there is a post COVID clinic and we see a lot of these uh, patients with long COVID syndrome, be it Headaches, be it anxiety, depression, be it shortness of breath that's prolonged for unknown reasons like deconditioning and stuff like that. So what's your comments on that, on the long COVID and the side effects of COVID uh, afterwards? Well, it's great that we have a term to collect all this uh, constellation of symptoms and conditions we're having. And it's a patient-created term, long COVID. It's uh, very descriptive and very useful. I think this was also one of the things about a year ago or so there was some uncertainty about. And rather than um, avoiding infection in the first place, a lot insisted on finding out, a lot of countries finding out what uh, happens and, and opening Pandora's box. We, we were getting roughly in adults, most of the more reliable studies that we see suggest that about 10 to 20 percent of COVID survivors end up with long COVID, symptoms that last four weeks, 12 weeks, sometimes up to a year and even more. And unfortunately, we also see it in kids, about 8 to 10% of, of children also are having long COVID after infection. So it's a very worrying signal, basically, because it's one way of thinking about it is that this is a, an alarm sign that something is happening within the body. And we've had dozens of studies come up over the past several months that are already shedding light on what is happening in the body of a lot of COVID survivors. And these are worrying signals, including things such as some changes or damage to the brain, some areas in the brain, functional autoantibodies within the body damaging various organs or systems. And this might not happen in all COVID survivors, but in a very large proportion of them, this is what is happening, including those that are having milder asymptomatic infection. In some way, COVID has really, this infectious disease has bridged onto creating chronic disease and chronic conditions. And what we're probably going to have is a wave of chronic disease in the, in the future or as of moving forward. Yeah, I think this is like a fascinating point that we don't focus on a lot because we've transitioned from the morbidity and mortality in the world being from uh, non-communicable diseases, NCDs, and we've kind of went back where communicable diseases are like part of the top killers. So this is like an interesting transition from you have like an infectious disease to a chronic constellation of diseases. And I guess 
this is what happens when you let a virus free and roam. So we, we, we've talked a little bit about the strategies or part of strategies that don't work, such as vaccination, such as flattening the curve, such as intermittent lockdown. So in your opinion, what is to be done? Well, a strategy should, one important thing to, to keep in mind is the goal. Well, what is the target that we want to reach? And zero COVID provides that. You want to reach zero community transmission. You'll still have cases pop up from time to time, but you rapidly isolate cases and quarantine your, their contacts. Uh, if you need to lock down a neighborhood or a district or a city, uh, the worst case, or if not, if it's completely out of control, a country. But the, the goal is to reach zero, uh, zero community transmission. So how you go about that can be slightly different in one place uh, versus another. But it certainly has to incorporate the elements of an effective contact tracing, effective isolation, and quarantine. And for isolation and quarantine, in most countries, relying on self-isolation and self-quarantine is probably a recipe for failure. And we see, we have some studies, for example, from the UK last year, the overwhelming majority, 80% of people that were identified as COVID positive and were asked to self-isolate in their homes, did not comply. Now, some countries that have more resources, like South Korea, Taiwan, authorities have the capabilities to identify smartphone tracking, for example, if someone has broken their home quarantine or home isolation, but in a lot of others, you don't. So other countries are relying on quarantine centers or isolation centers. So you can adapt it locally in one form or another. Certainly, you need to have travel quarantine for people coming in to your country. That certainly has to be done. And of course, vaccination, because especially with these variants, even the zero COVID countries are beginning to have challenges if they haven't vaccinated enough. That is also something that we are seeing. I have a few slides at some point, whenever you prefer, I can show that. So I guess like what you were saying, we need to set a goal as a first step. So the goal is either to control or eliminate. And that depends on like what we're gonna do next. So if you're controlling, we have two options, right? We hear a lot in the public health about like mitigation of risk, avoiding overwhelming the services. And this is where flattening the curve falls in. But we can we also talk about suppression, right? And I guess this is a strategy that we've tried with HIV. But what I'm hearing you say is when it comes to COVID, it should be something similar to like measles and smallpox, where the goalpost is to actually eliminate and to reduce the cases to zero. And this would include a comprehensive strategy that would include vaccination, right? So I guess this is the challenge with Australia right now, maybe, is they initially did zero COVID, but didn't vaccinate enough. So now with like the outbreaks, it's been a challenge. Is this like a fair summary? Yes, I absolutely agree. And the thing with it is that, strictly speaking, if we want to eliminate, elimination, the concept of elimination is also adapted in terms of COVID. There is no consistent definition or clear definition in terms of COVID yet, because it's a new disease. For other diseases, there are, for example, definitions of, let's say, no new cases in a period of three months or so. It can vary. Now, the idea is, of course, to aim for elimination. But at the very minimum, you contain cases. So by at least targeting elimination, you maintain the containment at very low levels, zero or near zero. And once in a while, you will have some cases, but you need to rapidly then target these. My next question for you is, I understand this. I'm going to ask you a more difficult question now. Uh, yeah, we can share the slides too, but as you're sharing the slides, so we can say it's zero COVID, but why not say, for example, vaccinate, like some countries were doing, is vaccinate enough people to make it 
a milder disease and then you can live with it as like a regular viral infection like a common cold or or influenza virus why not take that strategy yeah that's a very interesting uh, issue for one thing there is a, an idea in general that a lot of us have heard and i've heard personally as well from policymakers and and certain uh, people that eventually this virus will just get very mild by itself and become something like the common cold or, or the flu or another approach to it is to think well for starters there's that absolutely doesn't make sense because if it's going to happen one day it will be far off in the future uh, there is selective pressure on this virus to actually get more fit and transmit more there's no selective pressure genetic selective pressure for it to transmit less or harm less at this point because most of the infection is happening plus or minus 2 3 days of symptoms appearing. And then uh, the death usually is happening much later, sometimes two weeks, often three weeks or four weeks later. So there's no pressure uh, in an evolutionary sense for this virus to get milder, at least not in this uh, near time frame. The other thing is, of course, vaccination helps. It helps a lot. And the countries that have managed to vaccinate most of their citizens or residents are generally better protected. But uh, unfortunately, in some cases, they've over-relied on that and then ignored other public health measures to prevent transmission uh, in the first place. Now, there's also an issue of assuming that the population is homogenous. The population isn't. Some people will respond better, will have better protection to uh, the virus than others. And then we have also this issue of additional variants. The vaccine is great, but it's not 100%. Uh, even if it was, when you release it in the real world, it won't reach 100%. Also because it was very obvious uh, that for the overwhelming majority of countries, from the start, even before vaccines were available on the market, that some people will take the vaccine and others won't, for whatever reason. So we need to adapt ourselves. It's not the textbook exercise, it's the real world. And in that sense, you can't rely only on that. There's also the other issue when we spoke earlier about long COVID and potential for chronic conditions and things of that sort. We don't know if vaccination protects that. I mean, we have these breakthrough cases, which are not that rare, actually, and some countries are doing a better job of tracking them than others. But we're having these cases come up, and they are also susceptible to long COVID. How much, we don't know yet. So uh, hopefully there is more protection from the vaccine uh, in terms of long COVID as well, but we know that we can't rely on it yet. And plus, we can't vaccinate yet uh, most of the children. Can you take us through your slides now, just discussing yes. the strategy in Lebanon, I guess, and across the world? Sure. So so over here, we, we have uh, the contrast between countries that have followed the mitigation approach versus those that have actually followed the zero COVID approach. And we see that those who followed zero COVID come in all shapes and sizes, small countries, big countries, islands, non-islands with 100 million people more. So it comes in those with, uh, that have more resources and less. This is just contrasting Lebanon and, and zero COVID countries. Again, the contrast is fairly obvious. Uh, this is, uh, for example, one important study that uh, came out two, three months ago, again, showing autoantibodies. It needs a zoom in, but is that even with asymptomatic or mild infection, we are having autoantibodies being detected. And the danger is, uh, one of the quotes is that from one of the authors is, uh, our findings reinforce the importance of getting vaccinated. The fact that even mild infections are associated with autoantibody production underscores the potential for long-term consequences of COVID-19. 
There are others, uh, there's dozens of them. This is just a quick uh, brief selection. Is COVID-19 the perfect storm for Parkinson's disease? Because we are seeing, and we, we had hints of this from last year, we are seeing some changes in the brain that are similar to what we see in some forms of dementia. And again, some brain imaging study, a very impressive one done in the UK, pre and post infection, the same individuals. And again, finding various changes and damage to various parts of the brain, even in, in those that were not hospitalized. Okay, so I guess this is a good point to transition to bring it back to Lebanon. I guess the debate in Lebanon has been that we should open up the country to save the economy, even at the expense of COVID. And I guess that strategy hasn't been working so far because we lost both the economy and uh, the fight to zero COVID. So I guess what is the national strategy that you're proposing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because in effect, actually, we know, I mean, uh, just uh, by logic, without health, you can't have a functioning economy or at least some level of health and allowing a virus like this just to get widespread with all the damage that it causes to individuals and then also to the health system is, is uh, just a very bad idea. And sure enough, by now we have, we have the figures. I haven't included the, um, uh, an image on this, but w- w- we can see from the analysis that have been done comparing zero COVID countries or those that contain the virus at very low levels versus those that followed mitigation and allowing more uh, widespread uh, virus. We can see that the economies actually of those who uh, clamped down on the virus are actually growing. They've been doing quite well versus the others which are not. So that is um, one thing. Uh, I should also mention that my background, uh, most of my work, I've always loved working at the crossroads of medicine and public health, and that that is my background. Um, But uh, And most of my work has been in health systems. But I've been fascinated by this argument uh, of, of people framing it all about the health system and protecting the health system. The function of the health system is to protect people in the first place. Of course, we want the health system to function, but uh, we should not try to test it to, to its limits. It's, it's actually there to protect people. So, so that's why it's, it's never been about uh, hospital capacity. When, once you start thinking that, it's too downstream. You need to think upstream as well. Of course, you need your, your hospitals to be ready to receive the cases that do occur, but you need to work much more upstream at preventing cases in the first place. So is there any hope for Lebanon? <laughs> <laughs> in terms of Lebanon, yes. That's, from, what, uh, from what standpoint? <laughs> COVID. COVID. <laughs> you, you know, that, that was a very good question and it still is a very good question. And uh, last year, considering that we're in the middle, I mean, this couldn't have happened perhaps at a worse time. We have a political, financial, economic crisis. The challenges that the country is facing are just enormous. But there was this choice. Do we just say that we can't do anything about also COVID, which is yet another overlapping crisis, or do we try to actually do it? I and some of my colleagues that got involved in all this believe that, no, we, we can do something about it, and it is possible. But what was needed was to have a technical team that has the mandate to, uh, to apply a zero COVID strategy. Of course, nothing is perfect in the real world, but if we, if we had had that, we could have achieved a lot. And other countries that also have political turmoil like uh, or challenges, like, for example, Thailand, uh, they were applying zero COVID. And last year, they were also having protests in the street against the government or the government. So there always is hope, but it takes effort. And if we don't try, then we certainly will fail. 
Of course, now it's exceptionally challenging. It's still necessary to go for zero COVID to protect the people alive today and, and, and uh, the young and the old. So it's out of this that, that we try to uh, do this because also it's, it's extremely sad to see that in some way we are also seeding chronic diseases among the young and the old. And this will have multi-generational impact just like our other crises will as well. That is one thing. We are able to make a change and it is within our capacity. It's ridiculous to say it's not within our capacity. And the cost of this is peanuts compared to the actual cost of allowing it to be widespread and the hospitals to collapse in the face of this. So that is also another reason. We also, that we, can, we cannot rely, we cannot put the blame on individuals, on the public. Of course, anyone who does their efforts, who does mask, who does vaccinate, that is great and that's very helpful and important and importantly ventilate because the virus is airborne. It's like the secondhand smoke. That is also a very important idea to get through. There is a, a very interesting background to that story of is it, background, uh, is it airborne or not? But it, it, it in fact is. If you look at specks of dust when the sun is shining in to your room, you'd appreciate, one would appreciate I mean, the, the value of this. But we cannot, uh, there always has to be a coordination at the leadership level. Without that, it's just limbs functioning without a brain thinking. So, so you need leadership. If the leadership uh, isn't up to it, then, yeah. It's so very we shouldn't difficult. give up. The leadership shouldn't give up. We shouldn't just watch and see what happens. There's actually something that we can do. And the Zero COVID Committee basically is giving the leadership a strategy on like a silver plate for them to just implement, right? Uh, yes, I mean, we, we cannot wait. I know a lot of people want political change, political leadership, but this is an issue that cannot wait. So, of course, if, if uh, everything else was going fine in the country, it would be easier. But with this issue, we cannot wait. So at least technical leadership. And the, part of the frustration with this is because, okay, we understand largely there is political disinterest in this, I think. But there's also technical incompetence. And our role is to challenge this and to help improve it. So this is your, what we're seeing here on the screen is your national strategy for uh, zero COVID, right? Uh, specifically in, in Lebanon. Yes, uh, we had uh, made this uh, last year, the Independent Committee uh, for, uh, for the Elimination of uh, COVID-19 in Lebanon, zerocovidlb.com. We had made it and we presented it to officials. We tried to spread it all around, but uh, they, they did not uh, uh, consider this. But again, it was the zero COVID strategy, but adapted to Lebanon. And we had three different phases. And because the cases were widespread at that time last year uh, in Lebanon, you know, we needed a lockdown four to six days. And we, we also needed to increase testing capacity. Yes, sorry, four to six weeks. Yes. Because just as rapidly as the virus can increase, you can get it down as well. The exponential works in the opposite. And it's important to do this because it's, it's just like if you just lower the cases to some extent, or let me go by the phases. So we have the short term and we also needed a centralized quarantine, two weeks centralized quarantine applied at the airport and borders. Communication also with the public sharing, data sharing, because a lot of health professionals are be willing to help also the authorities with a lot of analysis and support work, but they, uh, 
the data sharing, it's unbelievable that we still only get it in images and not in actually data usable files. So, but from the short term, we go on to the phase two, the intermediate term. After the four to six weeks lockdown, we apply something called green zoning, which at that time, I think Lebanon had the capacity to undertake. At this point in time, uh, it probably has to be at a larger scale, at, at the scale of regions, perhaps, or uh, altogether lockdown until you have zero community transmission in the country altogether. But uh, the, the, again, we have the green zoning dividing regions in the country or air zones in the country, which are comprised, let's say, of several municipalities, uh, dividing them. Those that have zero cases can function as near normal as possible. But then those that have any community transmission are red cases, so are red zones, and those bordering them are orange zones because the transmission is happening. Infection is hyper-local. It's basically where you're getting in contact with people. So that was the initiative for zoning, as, as well as especially given, given the super spreader potential of COVID, a minority of cases caused the vast majority of infections. Again, uh, super spreader events were, were something also to, to highly target, as well as ramping up uh, isolation and quarantine and finally maintaining. Now, there's an important point about reaching because this virus is like a fire. If let's say your kitchen is on fire, and you're sitting in the living room, you wouldn't say, you know, it's just the kitchen, it's not going to spread. It will spread eventually. It's only a matter of time, and it's pretty quick. Let's say the kitchen is on fire, and it's spread to the bedroom. You don't put off the bedroom and uh, rest at ease. You need to also put off the fire in the kitchen. So that's the whole concept of firefighters or people that respect uncertainty in their professions, even if it's not a health profession, very often get this. But that is also an important concept to keep in mind. Great. I think uh, thanks to both of you for discussing the strategy, particularly internationally, particularly for Lebanon. I think I think the numbers talk for themselves. I mean, there's a lot of debate about zero COVID versus mitigation of spread uh, versus uh, vaccination, trying to control COVID-19. But it seems like the numbers are talking that the zero COVID strategy has had the least number of infections and probably the least number of long COVID syndrome, but I think over the next probably number of years, we're going to see the cost of all strategies and we'll see which strategy worked the best. But it seems like zero COVID has a lot of data behind it at this point. Yes, we believe so. And we'll keep trying. How can people get involved? Like, I think a lot of uh, healthcare professionals are listening to this. So how can they help? For one thing, it could be to, to help share the message. We are on Twitter, zero COVID LB. And we, are, we also have our website, zerocovidlb.com. We have a presence on Facebook as well. And we have our own internal uh, Slack platform for communication and volunteers are, are more than welcome to, to get involved and reach out and contact us. There's more information as well on the website. And of course, they are very welcome to contact any of the persons uh, involved in this. And potentially lobby for this strategy in, in Lebanon. That's probably the most important part at this point. Yes, Yes, exactly. And, and that's the challenge that we face because understandably, everyone is overwhelmed with the crisis. There's with the multiple ongoing crises, but, but uh, it matters now. It matters now because with uh, an infectious disease with this much impact on mortality and morbidity and this fast spread, the impact that one can have on the health of their population is huge. So uh, it's certainly worthwhile. It's as good a time as uh, any to, to actually get involved in something like this. 
we need more frontline advocates, I guess. Yes. And I think I mean, through the Ministry of Public Health, and I want to remind people too that the Lebanese order of physician elections are coming up soon. So it's very important to register yourself in the LOP and vote because that's one way of changing the status quo. Make sure you pay your fees. Incidentally, we've, we've shared this with the LOP, but we've never had a response as well. But we need to vote. All right. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You.